Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking crimes against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual, domestic, and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that honestly, none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. Two thousand and eleven, North Arkansas. A six-year-old kindergartner escaped the hands of an abusive and drug-addicted father and stepmother. She was returned full-time to her doting mother and beloved little sister. After this, the next year of Jersey's life was happy and carefree. But all that would change when a predator was closer than anyone could imagine. A predator who would brutally cut short this beautiful little girl's life. This is Jersey's story. It's a face most of us will never forget. Six-year-old Jersey Bridgman was reported missing on November 20th. She was found dead that same day, just two doors down from her home. In addition to family and friends, school officials were at a loss trying to figure out how they would break the news to Jersey's classmates. What we're going to tell them is that they did lose a classmate and um, that the classmate uh, died. Some of the students required counseling. These were kids that rode the bus with Jersey or lived in the neighborhood with her. And that neighborhood would never be the same. It's hard to look at her and hold her, but at the same time, I'm thankful that I can because, you know, Jersey's up in heaven saying thank you for taking care of my puppy. Bentonville police teamed up with other law enforcement agencies, and on November 23rd, an arrest was finally made. After an extensive investigation, the Bentonville Police Department has arrested Zachary Holly, age 28, for capital murder, kidnapping, and residential burglary. And of course, the rape charge was added later. Zachary Holly remains in the Benton County Jail tonight, and we're told his mother is the only person who has visited him. Extra security has to be on hand now for Holly because he's already been attacked once. Jersey Diane Bridgman was born November 14, 2006, to parents Desiree Crouch and David Bridgman. The couple would go on to have another child, another girl, Lee, in 2009. But unfortunately, they would separate very soon after Lee was born. Bridgman would quickly move on and remarry within a year of divorcing Jersey's mother. Yana Bridgman would bring two children into this new blended family, a nine-year-old and a three-year-old. Desiree and Bridgman did share the children 50-50, which is ideal if both parents are fit and able. I've always said, it takes two people to make a baby, so it should be two people to raise that baby, even if those parents are separated. Now, of course, there are many situations where this is not possible, and it definitely isn't in the best interests of the children. But if both parents can and are healthy, balanced adults, then it is the best situation for the children to have a great relationship with both parents. So Jersey and Lee would separate their time with their mother Desiree and with their father and stepmother in the nearby town of Rogers, Arkansas. Now I wish I could say this was a special time for Jersey to bond with this side of her family, but it wasn't. 
it was like a nightmare for the little girl who would have been four or five at this time. You see, David Bridgman had substance abuse problems. Whether this is known to Desiree, the Family Court and Child Protection Services, it's not clear. Given the kind of parent Desiree is, I strongly believe she didn't know her ex-husband was addicted to marijuana and methamphetamines. According to David and Yana Bridgman, Jersey would get up during the night and get into medication and snack foods. She would eat until she threw up. That they tried having her sleep in their room on the floor and that didn't work. She still managed to sneak out and they were allegedly concerned about her taking an overdose of medication, which is a valid concern. But instead of moving the medication to a locked medicine cabinet or moving the snack food to a higher shelf where Jersey couldn't reach, common sense to me and you, you remove the temptation and keep your child safe, but no. David and Yana Bridgman had another idea in mind. Bridgman had a belt cut to fit around Jersey's ankle with a dog leash chain that he tethered to the bedroom dresser, tethered by a literal dog choke chain that was only two feet long. Jersey undid the belt, so he added a lock, essentially imprisoning his child. Then after she complained about it hurting her leg, he chained her by the waist instead. December 2011. The Bridgmans had house guests staying over, who heard the pained sounds of a girl crying in the master bedroom. I know if that was me, there was no way I could hear the desperate and distressed cries of a little girl and not make sure she wasn't hurt or scared or whatever. I think being a parent you get to know the differences between cries and, I don't know, the mother and me cannot stand hearing a child upset. And that's what happens in this case. The house guest goes to investigate why this child is in distress, and that's when they discover the Bridgman's twisted method of discipline. Not only that, but because Jersey can't take herself to the bathroom, she basically cannot move. The room smells of urine, and there is just stuff everywhere. I don't know how this person knew the Bridgman's, but they seem completely sane and normal, because what they do next is what you or I would do in this situation – You free the child and console them, make sure they know they are safe now, and you get straight on your phone and call the police. Now, of course, the police arrive immediately and arrest David and Yana Bridgman. They would both plead guilty to charges of false imprisonment, permitting the abuse of a minor and endangering the welfare of a child. David Bridgman would be sentenced to 18 years in prison, and Yana Bridgman was sentenced to 12 years in prison with three years probation. Jersey and Lee would be returned to the safe and loving arms of their mother Desiree, full-time, where they should be. A mother who was determined to ensure Jersey would recover from this abuse and lead a happy and normal and carefree childhood just like she deserved. In November 2012, when our story takes place, The family were living on South East A Street in Bentonville, Arkansas, in Desiree's dad's home. And this was still a fairly brand new neighbourhood for Desiree and the girls, six-year-old Josie and her two-year-old sister Lee. They only moved here a few months earlier. Now Bentonville is about 215 miles northwest of Little Rock, and it's best known as the Walmart capital. The Walmart headquarters are located there, It's a fairly small area with a population of around 35,000 people, 
So the whole city kind of revolves around this Walmart. Those who knew and loved Jersey would describe her as outgoing, full of life, and she was always talking. Quote, You'd hear her coming before you ever saw her. Everything about this little girl was beautiful. Unquote. Social worker Lacey Maybe, who worked with Jersey after the abuse she experienced at the hands of her dad and stepmother was discovered. Lacey said she helped Jersey through some very rough times, but she was amazed at her strength despite being only five years old when it happened. Quote, She was able to get past things that most people wouldn't necessarily get past. She was just able to get past it and love you no matter who you were. Unquote. Jersey and Lee were the centre of Desiree's universe, and she did all she could to give her daughters the best life she could. She made sure her daughters were happy and healthy. She was involved in all aspects of their life. Jersey had settled into her new environment with ease. She was in kindergarten at the Sugar Creek Elementary School. Desiree also got a job to support her and the girls, and for her to save up to eventually get a home of their own. She worked nights at the local Easy Mart convenience store, so she could be home with the girls during the day. And while she worked... Jersey and her little sister were looked after by their grandfather, or Desiree's best friend, next-door neighbour Amanda Holly, and her husband, 30-year-old Zachary Holly. Crimatorium translates to a place where crime resides. If you like lesser-known true crime cases such as murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries, and more, take the next step and subscribe from your favorite podcast app. Join me in the place where crime resides. Amanda and Zachary Holly lived next door to Desiree and the girls, in a trailer along with their own two children, one being a four-year-old boy who actually became close friends with Jersey, with the two playing most days before school or childcare. Amanda and Zachary were high school sweethearts and newlyweds. They had only married eight months earlier. Holly had learning difficulties and dropped out of school very early. In fact, he could not even spell his middle name. No shame on that. But it is mentioned in most contemporary news articles about him, so that's why I'm bringing it up today. A lot of this was outside of his control too. He grew up in a dysfunctional household, marred with substance use and abuse. Holly had been abused in every way possible by not only his stepfather, but also his mother and older brother growing up. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't have sympathy for him as an adult and what he does. But child Zachary Holly, little Zachary, I do have sympathy for. No child should go through that. It is incredibly devastating and sad. And unfortunately... Studies do show that children who are abused are more likely to grow up to be abusers themselves than those who don't experience abuse during childhood. It's not an excuse, but it is a factor here. Holly had a lengthy criminal history, nothing too serious and definitely not violent. His previous criminal convictions included public intoxication and contempt of court. He'd been in jail at least four times by his late 20s. Monday, November 19th, 2012. Desiree had to work her usual evening shift, finishing at 11. Her dad had plans that night, 
so she didn't think twice but to ask Zachary and Amanda Holly. After her shift, Desiree went to the neighbour's home to pick up Josie and Lee. Desiree carried her youngest child and Holly guided a sleepy Josie. He offered to make sure the girls were asleep and comfortable in their shared bedroom while Desiree showered and went to bed herself. She never questioned this. This wouldn't be the first time Amanda or Holly put the girls back to bed in their own beds while she got some much-needed sleep. She was thankful she had such wonderful friends in her life to help her raise her girls. The side door of the house was also left open for Desiree's newish boyfriend to come after he finished work. Desiree would never lock this door. This also allowed Amanda access whenever she needed to watch the girls or to get some food or supplies for her own children. Amanda and Holly were struggling financially. Neither were working and Desiree, I guess, paid them for babysitting with food. It seems that Desiree had a heart of gold and didn't like seeing any child go without and she saw the Holly children as her own. She wanted them to have as much as Josie and Lee. The next morning, Tuesday, November 20th, 2012, 6.30am, Desiree would be faced with every parent's worst nightmare. She went into the girls' room to wake Josie for school, but Josie was nowhere to be seen. Desiree looked all around the house and all around the outside of the house, but no Josie. She ran to her neighbours, the Hollies, and begged Amanda to tell her that Josie was there, but she wasn't. That was when reality set in for Desiree. Josie was missing. And at 9.45, she called 911. While on the phone to police, Desiree became so upset that she had to hand the phone over to Amanda Holly. Police swarmed the scene within minutes, searching the neighbourhood inch by inch, with the hope that six-year-old Josie went out exploring, went a little bit too far and got lost. It was only 15 minutes into the search, when officers noticed an open rear door to an abandoned home on the other side of the Holly trailer, so two doors down from Desiree. Was it possible that Josie went in there to play? Possibly. But when police went in to look around the house, they didn't find a curious kid hiding. Instead, the scene was horrific. In a closet was Josie, naked and face down, with her pyjamas wrapped tightly around her neck three times. Josie Bridgman had been murdered. As what is the norm with any unsolved child murder case, those closest to the child are investigated, as well as local sex offenders. Police spoke to all sex offenders registered as living a few miles from the crime scene. All were cleared, and as there was no forced entry into the home, police believed the suspect was known to the family, that they knew the side door would be left unlocked. And back to our local late-breaking story out of Bentonville this morning. Here's a rundown of what we know so far. Six-year-old Jersey Bridgman died sometime between midnight and 6 a.m. on Tuesday. We also know that the FBI is now in on the investigation with Bentonville police to try and solve the case. Several people have been interviewed and three homes were searched in the neighborhood where Jersey's body was found. Police say even though no one has been arrested yet, the investigation is moving quickly. I feel confident that we've taken steps that we need to take as quickly as possible. And I feel confident that the answers to all of our questions are, are within reach. Even still, though, we are now two days out and details about the killing are vague. We don't know who exactly police have interviewed so far or 
Really, how they even know this is a murder investigation. They still haven't told us how the little girl died or if her body showed any signs of abuse. Obviously, this case is too important for the family. It's too important for the community. Uh, you know, it's too important to, to, to everyone. The FBI became involved and they focused in on Amanda and Zachary Holly being the last ones to see Jersey alive. Not necessarily interviewing them as persons of interest, but they were close to Jersey. Maybe she mentioned someone questionable hanging around, or maybe they saw someone themselves. Like how these cases normally go, I imagine Desiree's new boyfriend may have been a person of interest in the early days of the investigation, and possibly they were looking for ammo on the case against him. Amanda's story didn't really add anything. She basically told the same story as Desiree. Holly denied having anything to do with Jersey's disappearance or death. He claimed he was having trouble sleeping that night and walked to a convenience store to buy some medication for an upset stomach, only waking at 6.30am to get his son ready for school. And that's when he heard Desiree's desperate cries about her missing daughter and went to help. That he absolutely loved Jersey and she loved him, even calling him Uncle Zach. Holly told police that he wanted to do whatever he could to be discounted so they could find her killer. He agreed to give investigators swabs from his cheek for DNA testing, because male DNA was found on Jersey. Holly also agreed to give investigators the clothes he wore the night before Jersey was found. Police followed up on Holly's alibi, and the CCTV from the convenience store did support what he said was true but they couldn't shake the feeling that possibly his alibi seemed too perfect, too convenient. And when they went to interview him again, he does a complete 180 and refuses to cooperate. He tells police he won't answer any further questions until the DNA results were back, and not without his lawyer present. Not that that's a bad thing. I would always recommend having a lawyer present when talking to police in situations like these. We see so many times... Police want to get their person, and hours and hours of interrogation can cause an innocent person incriminating themselves, and suddenly they are in jail for a crime they haven't committed. But then, only a day or so later, Holly called investigators, insisting on taking a polygraph to clear his name. Another complete flip. It would later be revealed this was Amanda's doing, that if Holly didn't clear his name, then she'd be taking the children and leaving. Bravo to her for standing up for herself and for the child that she did genuinely love and care for. But this polygraph would do the opposite of what Amanda hoped. Holly's polygraph showed deception and confirmed to investigators their suspicions. It was now just a waiting game for the DNA results to be returned. I think Holly knew now it was just about over for him. He posted on Facebook that he had made a big mistake and it was going to ruin the life he had created with his wife. Police carried out search warrants on Jersey's home, the Hollies, and the abandoned property where Jersey was found, removing 50 pieces of evidence in total from the three properties. Once the DNA was returned, it was clear what happened here. Holly's DNA was all over Jersey in her pyjamas. They received these results on the day of Jersey's funeral, which I think there is some strange higher power stuff going on here. Like Jersey was responsible for all this coming together so her mum could get some comfort on this difficult day. 
that her mum could know there was some justice on the horizon. The police actually would arrest Holly just before he walked into the church for Jersey's funeral. He is questioned by police again and he sticks to his original story at first, that he knew nothing of what happened to Jersey. But when faced with all the evidence against him, he cracks. He confessed to what he did. Holly gave detailed accounts of what he did and where he placed Jersey after the murder. Details that no one else knew besides police. Holly mentioned carrying Jersey into the abandoned house, where he takes her pyjama bottoms off and sexually abuses her. He tells police that Jersey fought. She kicked out at him to get him to stop. That's when Holly said he tied her pyjama bottoms in a knot around her neck and twisted them tighter and tighter until she stopped struggling. What would have went through this sweet little girl's mind in her last moments? She was with her mother full time and she was happy. A completely different situation that she was in only a year earlier. And then here was a man that she looked at as a father figure. Another man in her life that wanted to hurt her. In this foreign, dirty house. So close to the safety of her mother's arms, but still so far. There was nothing she could have done but fight for her last breath like she did. A fighter right until the end. May 2015. Zachary Holly goes to trial for capital murder. This was an open and shut case for the prosecution. They had the overwhelming forensic evidence and Holly's confession. For the defence, they were just trying to stop their client from being executed. Which honestly, for me, there was no other option. Prison was just too good for him. And what he did to this little girl who had already been through so much tragedy in her short life. So, it was no surprise to anyone on May 20th, 2015, Zachary Holly was found guilty for Jersey Bridgman's murder. Before his sentence was read, Holly addressed Desiree and her family, most likely looking for leniency from the judge and trying to escape the death penalty, in my opinion. I doubt it was any remorse on his part. Quote, I want to sincerely apologise for the pain I have caused, and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Unquote. I think I speak for Desiree and the rest of her family here. No, there is no world, no existence where you can be forgiven for what you have done. To me, that apology is a joke, and in no way recognises what he has done, and, as I said, does not show any remorse or guilt for his crime and the pain he caused. I hope he suffers for the rest of his life and afterlife for what he has done. May 27, 2015. Zachary Holly would be sentenced to death. He would also be sentenced to an additional two life terms plus 20 years for the other charges of rape, kidnapping and residential burglary. Desiree tearily took the stand to give her victim impact statement remembering her beloved little girl and speaking of her relief that justice was served, that she could finally have some closure. Quote, It has pretty much been an ongoing funeral. We no longer have to remember that bad day. We get to remember our baby. We get to remember the good times and no longer have to focus on the nightmare. This is my daughter's day. This is not his. He cannot take this away from her. I'm going to keep going on as a mum. Unquote. Holly's execution was set for November 16, 2015. 
But typically, the process when someone is sentenced to death, they are given an automatic appeal. For reasons that aren't clear, Holly's execution being one of eight given temporary stays in Arkansas. Holly had his last appeal he was eligible for in 2019, and still sits on death row, in Vanna Supermax Prison in Arkansas, waiting for the day he will meet his maker. Desiree has since remarried to her boyfriend she was dating at the time of Jersey's death, Brandon. They have gone on to have a child together, a little girl they named Elizabeth. A little girl that will only ever hear about her big sister, that I'm sure will have an influence over her life and the freedom she gets with other people. But she'll never get to meet Jersey, which is a true tragedy, because Jersey would have been an amazing role model for her baby sister, showing her what an amazing fighter she was while keeping that bright spark that everyone loved. A bright spark that is a true loss in this dark and horrid world. Jersey Bridgman, rest in peace, sweetheart. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.